Well, it's a joy to be able to gather uh, this Easter Sunday as a church, even if we are doing so remotely. Uh, Several weeks ago, we had hoped that Easter Sunday would be the time that we could all come back together after a season of social distancing. But obviously, the Lord had different plans. Uh, Part of that plan, of course, is for us to be uh, together more with our families, to be slowed uh, down a little bit, maybe in some of our schedules. And so in that way, it's a great blessing, especially during this Holy Week, for us to take a a few extra moments to uh, slow down our schedules and to think deeply about the things the Lord has done. Now, of course, as we come to a time in the Word of God this morning, it's always a challenge for us to think about where we can direct our hearts and minds and in the, in the New Testament, in the Scripture, to think about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the resurrection really is so pervasive throughout the entire New Testament. It is the, you might say, it is the, the essence of the message of the New Testament. It's found everywhere. Or we could turn that around to say, that if there was no resurrection, there would be no New Testament. There would be no church. There would be no gospel. There certainly would be no Easter. There would be no gathering uh, of the church on Easter Sunday or on any Sunday for that matter. Uh, In fact, Sunday would be just another day because the resurrection is what has marked out this day for all of time as so special. You see this certainly as you move into the New Testament The first sermon that was ever preached after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension in Acts chapter 2 by Peter, he he, uh, zeroes in on the resurrection. His message, you might say, centers around that. He mentions it twice in very prominent ways in that sermon. You get to chapter 3, Peter again is preaching on the resurrection. You get to chapter 5, once again, he's preaching on the resurrection. Even back in chapter 4, when they were before the Sanhedrin, Peter's preaching on the resurrection. Once you get into chapter 7, you see Stephen preaching on the resurrection. In chapter 8, Philip preaching on the resurrection. Chapter 10, once again, Peter preaching the resurrection. Or chapter 13 and chapter 17, you see the Apostle Paul preaching on the resurrection. And it's no different whenever you move into the, the letters, the epistles, you find the same kind of focus. Paul opening up the book of Romans and telling us that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God by power, according to the Spirit, by His resurrection from the dead. Romans 6 talks about our salvation in terms of us being in union with Christ in His death and resurrection. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, of course, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. 2 Corinthians 1.9, God was working, Paul said, in his life and in his fellow workers' life to teach them not to rely on themselves, but on God who raises the dead. Galatians talks about the Father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Ephesians, Paul prays that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened so that we might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Philippians, Paul says that he wants to know the fellowship of Christ and the power of his resurrection. And you could just go on and on and on through the letters of Paul, Thessalonians and Timothy, or the letter of Hebrews, or uh, Peter, whenever he talks about us having been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it's very obvious that this resurrection was the centerpiece of the New Testament message. It was the centerpiece 
of the hope of the believer. The Christian message is the fact that Jesus rose from the grave in a glorified physical body. It's like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 42, what is sown perishable is raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. If you want to know more about the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul kind of makes this contrast of the resurrected body with the natural body in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So it's, he says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. In other words, his resurrected body is likened unto our resurrected body. And what do we see when we see the resurrected Christ? We see him in this glorified, magnificent, physical resurrection. It's a body in which he walked, a body in which he ate, a body in which he touched others, a body in which he, in which he uh, 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 spoke and taught and conversed with people. It is in so many ways a human body as the Lord created human bodies at the very beginning, but it's a glorified body. Now this is, this is the testimony of the New Testament, not only of the resurrected Lord, but it's the testimony of what you and I hope in, that we will be raised from the dead in like fashion to Him. And what we see when we look into the New Testament is the accounts and the records of His resurrection and the, and the witness of the apostles, the witness of all those who were eyewitnesses, we see that as a, as a record, as a testimony to the physical, bodily resurrection of Christ from the grave. As I said then, this becomes the central, uh, the central item in Christian preaching, just as it is the central item in our hope of our own salvation that we too would experience this same kind of resurrection. Now it's important to understand that this notion that when you die, that you're raised again in a, in a glorified and a supernatural body, this idea has always been one that has been scoffed at and met with, met with a skepticism by uh, rational, uh, I guess you might say, um, uh, rationalist or humanist or materialist. It's always been met with skepticism by, by, by the worldly minded. The bodily resurrection was, was doubted by the Romans. It was doubted by the Greeks. It was doubted by the Jews. In fact, you remember when Paul spoke about the resurrection in Acts 17 in the great city of Athens, it says that they actually began to mock him for even suggesting that when one died, they were raised from the dead. It's not as if Greeks didn't believe in an afterlife. They just believed in a kind of a, a spiritual or ethereal form of it. But uh, central to the Christian message is the fact that sin is what has introduced death to the human body. And that because Jesus Christ uh, subdued and defeated sin on the cross, therefore he defeated death for the human body. And as a testimony to that, he himself came out of the grave and he promises to every one of us that when we die, we too will be raised from the dead. This morning, we, 
have a few moments, I thought it would be diff- I thought it would be uh, 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 helpful for us if we take a few moments to reflect then again on the testimony of this great, great work of God in Jesus's life. It's interesting that uh, that even Jesus's own followers originally struggled with this idea. They originally met it, you might say, with skepticism. Even before he died, you remember, as he spoke about it, it was something that they struggled with. And of course, later when they wrote their Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, either written by the apostles themselves or written under the supervision of apostles in the case of Mark and Luke, even as they wrote those, they didn't try to sugarcoat the fact that, that, or pretend uh, that they understood this the whole time, that, that they had a, a full view of this. In fact, they had a difficult time believing it. And yet it became the great central, undeniable truth in their preaching. So the gospel writers are careful to lay out the details of the resurrection events for us to establish the record of facts to give testimony to all of the eyewitnesses, to give us all of the evidence, to lay the foundation of our confidence in what they themselves at first struggled to believe, but then they became eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Now, they're so concerned about this, I think, because they understand that it would be met with difficulty. In fact, the resurrection is recorded in all four of the Gospels, as we said, and Uh, and spoken about repeatedly throughout the New Testament. And I think they recorded it and they recorded the details of it because they understood that for, uh, for those who had not been there, for those who maybe were not even eyewitnesses of his resurrection, this would be the most important thing for them to believe, but at the same time, perhaps one of the more difficult things for them to believe. And so for that reason, we're going to take some time this morning looking particularly at Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 24, looking at his record of these events. And there are a number of elements that Luke records for us that indicate the strong evidence for this powerful, powerful event. And we can begin just by reading this passage so that we can frame it up in our minds. Luke 24 verses 1 through 11. Luke says, But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them number of evidences as i said that are given to us here that indicate the powerful powerful event that founded christianity for us the first one 
we might call this, is the return to the tomb that began a new day of worship. The return to the tomb that began a new day of worship. As I said, all four gospel accounts record this event. They record a group of women returning to the tomb on the first day of the week. Luke tells us down in verse 10 that this was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, whose wife, who was the wife of one of Herod's uh, significant managers, prominent managers, and Mary, the mother of James, and some other women with them. In fact, back in chapter 23, verse 53, Luke tells us that these were all the women who had followed Jesus down from Galilee, who were going, probably, no doubt in their minds, to celebrate what they thought would be a typical Passover, only to arrive and find their hopes, their world, devastated. They were, they were loving, they were loyal, they were faithful. They were the ones who, you remember, stood by Jesus at the cross. They were there when all the other disciples, except for John, had fled. When the arrest came in the garden, they scattered, but they quickly gathered back around the Lord. There was the women who remained with him, standing there, watching him in his agony, watching all the pain and no doubt feeling in their own hearts the intensity of the pain. It was them, we're told at the end of Luke 23, who went with Joseph of Arimathea when they took the body down from the cross and he took Jesus to his own tomb and it says that they put a hundred pound weight of spices on the body as they put it into the grave. We know the Jews didn't embalm the body. They didn't transfer the fluid out of the body, but they would cover the body in these spices in order to uh, eliminate or to reduce the stench. These women were there. They were there with hearts full of grief and hearts full of love as they placed the body of Jesus into the grave. It's sort of been agonizing for them. They were probably like the ones that, G, uh, that Luke describes a little bit later in Luke 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They were probably sell, uh, saying to themselves, we had hoped that this would be the one to redeem Israel. We had thought that this was the Messiah. We thought that this was finally the day of, of his arrival. We thought that he was going to bring us deliverance. And, and now he's dead and now he's buried. They knew it very well. They attended to his dead body. They helped lay him in the tomb. They watched it all. And now Luke tells us here in verse 1, they came back to the tomb bringing the spices that they had prepared. So uh, Jesus' body had been prepared already by Joseph and by Nicodemus, we're told. But these ladies return probably because it had been done in a hasty fashion. Luke tells us this happened on the first day of the week. That's important. All the Gospels tell us the same thing, whether it was the day after the Sabbath or the first day of the week. They all indicate that it's the day after Saturday. It's Sunday when all these things are taking place. You remember Jesus was crucified on Friday morning, around mid-morning, around 9 o'clock. And then he died, we're told, around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, six hours on the cross. And of course, the day would have ended around 6, which would have marked the beginning of the Sabbath day. And Jews did no work on the Sabbath day. And so there was a, a rush, if you will, to first of all go and ask for permission to take the body down, to second of all 
transport it to the tomb to lay it in the tomb to have it prepared to close the uh, to close the tomb with a stone and all of those things done really just within a couple of hours. All of these done, things done, we might say, in a rather hasty fashion. And no time to, we might say, properly prepare the body for its burial. And these women in God's providence witnessed all of these things and had a heart to want to come and serve the Lord Jesus in this way by preparing him. So the body of Jesus was placed in the tomb before the end of the day on Friday before sundown. It remained in the tomb during the Sabbath, that is on Saturday, until the following sundown. And then sundown on Saturday began a third day. And somewhere in the middle of the night, Jesus came alive again and walked out of the tomb. And so it was three days, just as Jesus said. He rose from the dead on the first day of the week. It's the same phrase that you find used throughout the New Testament when it talks about the gathering of the church. This was was the tradition. This is what happened. The church, for example, in Acts 20, gathered on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul instructs the church as they gather on the first day of the week. We see even in the appearances of Christ, he appears to the disciples here At the uh, end of this day, in the evening, he appears to them as they're locked together in a room on the first day of the week. He instructs them to go to Galilee, where he again appears to them on the first day of the week. Very clearly uh, identifying the significance of this day and setting the pattern himself for why you and I gather on a Sunday. Why we don't gather on Sabbath anymore. Why we don't follow the Jewish traditions anymore. This first day of the week became significant. Even in early church documents, they quote from the passages of of the uh, Gospels and they refer to this event, but they don't even call it the first day of the week anymore. They begin to refer to it as the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. The universal designation for the day when the church gathers to worship the Lord on Sunday. It's one of the reasons why we don't abandon it. I know there's a movement afoot for people to look for more convenience, to gather on Saturday nights or to gather some other time, but we continue to designate this day to honor this day because this was the resurrection day. And it presents one of the strongest evidences of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact that the the church replaced the Jewish Sabbath with a new day of worship the Lord's Day, on Sunday. It's an amazing fact that it's never been even a dispute in the church. There's not even one document in the church that ever questioned this or never indicated that the church gathered on another day. So from the very beginning, this has always been their testimony. It was natural for them to adopt this. Not Friday when Jesus was crucified. Not the Not the day of his burial, but the day of his resurrection. There's no explanation of that, really, apart from the resurrection. There's no explanation on why the church would change the gathering, the the day of public gathering from the Sabbath to the first day of the week, unless something monumental had happened on that day. Jews would not have easily given up the Sabbath as the day of public gathering. But on Sunday, he rose. And so Sunday stands as a 
as a perpetual testimony to that fact. Well, Luke, after noting the day of the week, continues on in the story in verse 2, and he says, They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Mark 16 actually records that they were, uh, that they were actually talking amongst themselves as they approached the tomb, wondering who would roll the stone away for them. These stones, which were uh, manufactured, they were cut, if you will, into the shape of a, of a large disc, maybe uh, four feet uh, tall. They would be rolled over the opening, the small opening of the tomb, as a way to seal it up, if you will. It rolled along in a channel alongside of the rock. These tombs were typically built into the sides of, uh, of, uh, of rocks or carved out of limestone. And when Joseph of Arimathea and and his friend Nicodemus who are with him, when they bring Jesus' body on Friday afternoon after he dies, no doubt came along with a whole horde of, of, of their servants, these men both being wealthy. And these women had seen all this, and they knew that there had been a number of men who had rolled this stone away, and they were wondering, even among themselves, with all these women, how they were going to do it. But when they get there, Luke says they found the stone rolled away to their surprise. It was already gone. They entered and they did not find the body. Now, as you read the resurrection accounts in all the Gospels, it's important to realize that each of these Gospel writers shares a little different part of the story, a little different aspect of it. But all of them include these important elements. And one of them being that that the, the stone had been rolled away. And you remember Luke told us that these women who had followed Jesus from Galilee, they were probably staying, by the way, outside the city near Bethany where Jesus himself was staying uh, in the home of, of uh, Mary and Martha. They were about two miles away and so they would have been making this journey maybe about 40 minutes or so, 45 minutes or so. Apparently, agreeing to meet together if they weren't uh, all staying together, agreeing to meet together at the tomb. And according to John 20, it was Mary Magdalene who first arrives at the tomb while it's still dark. She never apparently encounters the angel. She doesn't even go into the tomb. We're told that she just simply sees that the stone is rolled away and immediately draws the conclusion that someone has stolen his body. She doesn't go in. She doesn't look for the other women. But she turns and runs, John says, to tell the disciples they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. She draws this conclusion because really no one really expected a resurrection. Now, of course, prior to Mary Magdalene even showing up, there had been Roman soldiers. Matthew tells us in Matthew 20. Uh, 26 that the Roman soldiers had been posted there at the request of of the uh, of the Jews 
And in Matthew 28, behold, a severe earthquake, he says, occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him because he and they became, I should say, like dead men. So here they are. They've been set to guard the tomb uh, out of fear that somehow Jesus' own disciples would come and steal the body. And on Sunday, sometime early in the morning, really before daybreak, this angel comes down out of heaven, this massive earthquake, the stone rolls away, and these men are absolutely petrified. They fall down in fear. So the angel appears to these guards, rolls away the stone, and now, of course, the ladies show up, and all the angel, all of the uh, ladies have the same reaction. They are terrified. They're terrified. Verse 5, they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. They fall down because they're in the presence of holy angels. They're, you might say, unmasked in their own imperfections before these glorious, perfect creatures who were shining probably with the Shekinah glory of God Sort of like Moses' face shined when he came down from the mountain. These angels had appeared directly from the presence of God and were still glowing with the presence of God. Luke describes them as young men who stood in dazzling apparel. So they appeared in the form, we might say in human form. They weren't like those in the book of Isaiah or they weren't like those who are in the book of Ezekiel with faces of lions and... uh, and the wings of animals and feet of calves. They appear in human form, but still glowing with the glory of holiness. And they speak to these women. Mark actually says, when the women came looking up, they saw the stone rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. Luke mentions Two men, Mark only one. Luke tells us that one of the angels said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Mark adds to that. He tells us that they went on saying, He is risen. He's not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. Matthew records the same words. Come, see the place where he was lying. So the angels were there and they announced that Jesus isn't there. They announced that he's risen and then they invite the ladies to examine the evidence of the empty tomb. This is no doubt why they rolled the stone away to begin with. Not because the Lord Jesus needed someone to let him out. We know based on other encounters with Jesus's resurrected body, we know that he had the capacity to appear and disappear. We had the capacity to move through uh, solid objects like Walls. Even later on this evening, he will appear to the disciples who, as they're gathered together in a room, and he will, and the door being locked, he will walk into the room despite that restriction. So the stones rolled away by the angels. The women come in, and they're invited to see the evidence. They're invited to see the place where he was lying. The empty tomb then becomes this important, important piece of evidence to the resurrection. And there's really no explanation for it. No one 
throughout all history was willing to argue that the tomb wasn't empty. That has been basically conceded because everyone understands that if the body of Jesus was still in the tomb, that when Christianity began to take a a, a foothold and began to spread, the enemies of Christianity, the Jewish leadership and others, would have simply gone to the tomb and opened it up and presented the body of Jesus and discredited the whole enterprise. They would have discredited the, the message. They would have discredited the apostles. So everyone recognizes that the body wasn't there. Some people imagine that it was stolen by Jesus' disciples, but they can't explain how a band of disciples who just the previous night fled, or two nights before had fled when when the guards arrested Jesus, how this same band of disciples were able to sneak past these guards, roll away the stone without being caught, secretly steal away the body. Nor can they explain why these same disciples who... Uh, later on would go preaching the resurrection knowing that it's false false would eventually be willing to give their lives sacrificially all but one of them being martyred and dying for this cause how they would do that if they knew the resurrection was false and so the empty tomb became this evidence the centerpiece of the message of the resurrection and this is why the disciples all gave so much attention to recording it. But it was also why they became so bold in proclaiming it. Because they knew. They were eyewitnesses. They had seen the irrefutable proof. They gave multiplied testimony to it. Multiplied testimony. And the angels were there to make sure that the women and later the disciples saw it for exactly what it was. Now, the third piece of evidence that Luke notes here through the words of the angels is the reminder of Jesus' words that demanded confidence in His message. The angels telling them in verse 6, Remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. They had heard Jesus talk about this a number of times. Back in Luke chapter 9, when he was still in Galilee, he warns them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. He told them that again. He reiterated it in verse 43 of chapter 9 uh, that. Uh, They were all amazed at the greatness of God, but while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not understand this statement. And it was concealed from them so that they uh, they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Jesus had emphasized to them repeatedly the need for them to contemplate what he's saying because he's telling the future, he's predicting what's going to happen, and they didn't perceive what was going on. And from the other gospel accounts, we get the idea that these warnings of the resurrection were coming again and again, particularly in the latter half of Jesus' ministry. This is yet another evidence of the resurrection, which is simply the fact of Jesus' predictions 
about it, his predictions about it. And it's not as though the disciples, uh, uh, after the fact, decided that they would invent these predictions, because if they did, they probably would not have invented them in the way that they did. They wouldn't have presented themselves as being so dull-minded, so backward. They were the ones who were trying to convince everyone else to believe about this resurrection. The last thing they would want to do is to present themselves as the original skeptics. And yet this is exactly what you see in the Gospels. They, they, they were bumbling. They were clueless. They were blockheaded and foolish over and over again, unable to understand the simple predictions of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he had, he had perfectly predicted this and perfectly fulfilled it. Like the words of Isaiah 41, verse 21, when God calls his opponents and he says, present your case, the Lord says, bring forward your strong arguments. The king of Jacob says, let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are God's. In other words, God's declaration has always been this exclusive knowledge of both ancient and primordial uh, history as well as future events. And no one can match that knowledge. And Jesus himself put this on display, predicting his own death, burial, and resurrection. And the angels remind the ladies of that. This is not something that's invented by by later writers. This is not something that uh, was um, manufactured or redacted into the text by them. This was something that marked their testimony from the very beginning, just as it marked their day of worship from the very beginning. By the way, even if they, even if you wanted to suggest that they manufactured these in their New Testament writings, they certainly did not in the Old Testament. Passages like Isaiah chapter 53, Psalm 16, Daniel chapter 7, all of these that talk about the resurrection of the Messiah, they didn't rewrite those. These were all the testimony of God declaring beforehand exactly what would take place. The testimony of Christ long before they happened demonstrating that his resurrection was a part of God's plan. Well, we could add to the empty tomb and the new day of worship to the uh, fulfillment of Jesus' words. We could add here, number four, the role of women that launched the ministry for Jesus' followers. And Luke tells us this. In fact, every one of the gospel writers tell us this, that it was the women who were first the ones to report on the resurrection. They were the first preachers and proclaimers, if you will, to, uh, to a world of what had happened. The other gospel writers tell us that these women were given a direct command from the angels to go and tell others. Matthew 28, go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead and behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And so this becomes the, the beginning of the mission of the church, the beginning of the great commission, the beginning of the testimony of Christ's resurrection. 
And all of the gospel writers tell us that it was these women who launched the mission. In fact, Luke names uh, several of them here. They were the original eyewitnesses. It wasn't Nicodemus who returned to the tomb that morning. It wasn't Joseph of Arimathea. None of the disciples were the ones who came at first. They weren't there at the burial. They probably wouldn't have even known how to find it. It was these women who knew the location of the tomb. It was these women who first arrived. Now you have to understand in these days that women did not enjoy a high position in society. They had few rights. If they lost their husbands or their sons to death or in the case of their husband's divorce, they would be pretty much reduced to begging and to prostitution. And so they were terribly beholden to the men and to their husbands in society. They were not highly regarded. Their testimony was not allowed within the court system. And so it's interesting that God would turn the testimony of these several women into the first witnesses of the resurrection. God could have moved in such a way that the first witness would have been the wealthy Joseph of Arimathea or the well-positioned and, and um, uh, uh, influential Nicodemus. But they weren't there. Not even the disciples were there. Jesus didn't reveal himself to two disciples until much later in the day. It was only the women. I believe that's because God was making a point early on as he'll do it over and over again, that God has called us to be testimonies to this resurrection. And he, uh, he takes sometimes even those who are disregarded by the world to proclaim his majesty and his excellence. Just like at his birth when he chose the despised and poor shepherds to announce his birth. Now he's using these humble women to be the ones who would proclaim this truth first to the world. Again, if you were fabricating this story, this is not the way you would have written it. If you wanted to to establish credibility in the eyes of the ancient world, if you were those who were writing the gospel accounts, this is not the way that you would have written it. You would have written it with, as I said, someone powerful, someone influential. But God chooses those who are naturally discounted because it serves to magnify His power. And then finally, we only need to mention in verse 11 the reaction of the disciples that demonstrates the challenge of faith in the resurrection. The reaction of the disciples that demonstrates the challenge of faith in the resurrection. Luke 24 verse 11 says, the words of these women seemed to them, that is to the disciples, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. This is the final evidence, really. You say, well, how's that evidence? Because it disproves the suggestion that somehow this was all some fabrication of their overhyped expectation. That they wanted so badly to believe in a resurrection that they actually just made it up. That they... That they wanted it so much so that their minds constructed it. Well, if they had that kind of 
if they had that kind of motive, malicious thought, they wouldn't have fabricated the story this way. They wouldn't have fabricated it because they, wouldn't, they, because they, they really didn't anticipate it. In fact, Luke says their response was that all of this seemed like idle talk, nonsense, folly. That's what they thought. That was their response. That was their frame of mind. They didn't even think that this was possible. But the reason the Scripture lays out the unbelief of the disciples in all of the Gospels is to dispel the ridiculous idea that they invented this because they wanted it so badly. It's not the case. So every argument, every skepticism that would ever arise had already been anticipated by the Lord in His Word. Long before the skeptics put their suggestions to print, God recorded the events of the resurrection here in His Scripture. He recorded it, pointing already to all of the proofs so that you and I, along with every believer throughout all history, could boldly proclaim the resurrection as the core of our message, as the irrefutable proof of the truth of our salvation and our hope. His resurrection, of course, now is a corner piece of what we proclaim. Jesus lives, so too we will live. Because He conquered death, we too will conquer death. Because He went through the grave and came out the other side, we too will be resurrected from the grave. This is the foundation of our salvation. He said, because He lives, we will live also. He who believes in Him, though He dies, He will live. This is the Christian hope. This is the message of Easter. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for this wonderful day, this Sunday, this Easter day, Every day when we gather together to be able to join our hearts and minds in worship of our resurrected Lord. We're so thrilled to be able to look into your Holy Scripture back at these glorious moments when Christ came out of the grave. We thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice that he made for us. We thank you for the victory that he won in his resurrection. We thank you for the forgiveness that comes through his death facing all the wrath that we deserved, taking on the death that we had earned so that we could have the life that He victoriously gives. We thank You, Lord, that we can live in hope and that our hope will not be put to shame. That You've proven Your promises for both Christ and for us are true. That just as He came out of the grave, fulfilling Your every promise, doing exactly what He said He would do, we have hope that our resurrection is yet to come because You keep Your Word. You will raise up those who belong to You to spend eternity with the resurrected Christ in glory. Deliver us then, O Lord, from being occupied with mundane things. Forgive us even this day, for being absorbed in what is transitory, what is passing, what is brief. Help us to live our lives in light of the eternal hope of heaven. To put our affections 
our thoughts, our lives in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Fill us with hope. A hope that's incorruptible and undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved for us in heaven because Christ has been raised from the dead. Put our hope there. And help us every day to plant our minds fresh on these wonderful truths. To make us prepared to speak of them. To tell of them to all the world. To that end that we might lift Him up as He's so worthy of being lifted up. Make us Your ongoing witness just as these faithful women proclaimed Your resurrection. May we be like them. We pray all these things for the sake of Your praise and glory and honor. Amen.